What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Highly inflationary. Heads are reeling from the bank collapses we've seen over the past week, with many now calling for a Fed pause and rate hikes as a result. But former NEC director Larry Lindsay warns that is the wrong response to what just happened here. Should you keep hiking after something breaks? Larry joins us momentarily to make his case. Plus, Charles Schwab. It's a name everyone knows and one of the hardest hit bank names over the past week, even though it's a retail brokerage. The CEO will join us live exclusively this hour to defend his strategy and explain why they won't suffer a similar fate. And one bright spot from plunging yields are plunging mortgage rates. It only took a, six, a drop to 6.5% to fire up demand earlier this year. Analyst Stephen Kim is here with the housing stocks he thinks could be a buy right now if rates stay lower. Let's start with the markets, though, and it's green today. Dom Chu has our numbers. Not even just green, solidly so. A really decent-sized relief rally, a bounce back, if you will, Kelly. But the S&P 500 is up 62 points, kind of towards the higher end of its range so far today. The S&P 500 back towards that 4,000 level, but sir, 39.19 the last trade. 317-point gain for the Dow Industrials, up about 1%, the laggard, if you will, in today's trade. And a doubling of that, a 2-plus percent gain for the Nasdaq Composite, 11,428, up 239 points. So again, tilting towards the higher end of that range. But remember, the Dow is working on a five-day losing streak, so this could just be kind of that relief rally taking hold. One place to keep a close eye on, Kelly mentioned interest rates dropping lower but also the relief rally in banks. They're all heading higher right now, albeit yes. Anybody who's been watching our network and other business channels out there reading the news knows these banks have been hit incredibly hard. We've been showing you the damage that's been done. So right now, you look at First Republic up 47%, Western Alliance up 32%, PacWest up 61%. These are stocks that have lost a tremendous amount of their value over the course of the last couple of weeks. Zion's Bank Corp and Comerica as well. By the way, Moody's just today putting First Republic, Western Alliance, Zion's and Comerica on a lookout for a possible credit ratings downgrade. So watch the regional banks. And then Meta Platforms coming out with more job cuts, 10,000 more on top of the 11,000 they already cut back in November. They are trying to make this again, this year of efficiency that Mark Zuckerberg calls it. But still, those job cuts in the thousands are at least weighing on some of those investors out there who are looking at tech overall. But the stock is bid, as often happens with cost-cutting moves here. Still, though, with that many job cuts, Kelly, you wonder what the future looks like for Meta. There is optimism short-term right now. I'll send things back over to you. It's a huge move. Uh, it kind of fits with the macro right now, Dom. Thank you. We have rates moving higher once again with the yield on the two-year back above 4%. But remember, at one point yesterday, the two-year note yield fell to 3.939%. Not only its lowest level in five months, traders said it was a 12-standard deviation event. And between that and Japanese government bonds, the street is bracing for more fallout, maybe in the form of hedge funds. Rick Santelli at the CME with more. Hi, Rick. Yes, boy, you you just said a mouthful there, Kelly. A lot of my trading buddies are looking at that TSE banking index, and we'll show that later on when I come back. 
But the interesting part there is, just like our KBW index, it really uh, reflected some of the nervousness of the times, except for when you open it up to about 1989, which is when their stock market peaked in Japan, and then the volatility in their banking index completely disappears, unlike the KBW, something to pay attention to. Look at a two-day of two-year. It's almost come all the way back. Two words describe a lot of what traders are talking about. Mean reverting. And if you look at a one week of twos, listen, we've made a bit of a comeback, but we're still a ways from a real comeback. And remember, where did the two-year note settle last year? 443. So we're getting closer, but we're still underwater, as all maturities are. Now let's look at a one week of tens. You can clearly see that the one week of tens looks very similar to what we're seeing in the two-year, although it's not really coming back at the same pace as evidenced by the fact that you've moved 32 basis points twos to tens overnight from basically a whisker under 40 to back over 70 and finally talking about the JGBs here's a one week of the 10-year JGB basically flatlining just under half a percent with yield curve control and yes it went down a bit maybe the most important issue to focus on in Japan is the notion that unlike the US their banking and their governments have worked together closely in the past which isn't a good thing which is probably why I wouldn't worry as much about the banks there as maybe the banks elsewhere although the way the markets were acting I don't know. I've never seen a real banking collapse or a banking problem that move this slowly. Markets usually are quick to respond to things they're very nervous about. Kelly, back to you. Thank you, Rick. I will check back in with you in a little bit. Rick Santelli. In the wake of SVB's collapse, many have been calling for the Fed to pause rate hikes. But my next guest says they're misunderstanding the nature of this situation. Inflation is still stubbornly high. The Fed's backstop of SVB is only adding fuel to the fire. As a result, a pause would be the exact wrong response. To put it differently, the Fed should keep hiking past the point at which something breaks. Joining me now, former National Economic Council Director Larry Lindsay. He is president and CEO of the Lindsay Group. And we're also joined by CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman. Welcome to both of you. Larry, I'll start with you because I take your point that they just can't seem to get liquidity out of the system. They just keep putting it back in. But at the same time, don't you feel like we're in the early stages of a big turn in the business cycle that is ultimately deflationary? Well, we're certainly in for a big turn business cycle. I think we're going to see uh, credit contract later this year, um, and that's going to impact a variety of industries. Uh, we'll see how deflationary it turns out to be. I, I'm not holding my breath. But the important thing, people on the street are thinking in terms of their own book. Put yourself in the Fed's chair. Let's say we are going to have uh, a credit squeeze because bankers turn more cautious, because depositors are running. They are in up to their eyeballs on this uh, a bailout, if that's what you want to call it. If they don't hike, next week, they will be signaling that they don't believe it's going to work. The president said it was going to work yesterday. The Treasury Department put out a statement that all uninsured depositors are safe. They did that just this morning. Well, if it's going to work, the Fed had better signal that they think it's going to work Do you think, or that credit way, crunch is going to happen next month, Do not three months from now. Absolutely right. Just real quickly, um, is that should we all assume that backstop is going to work? <laughs> um, I uh, well, I know what I'm doing, which is I am still going to move, uh, particularly my business account uh, to safer clients. Uh, it's going to be a little bit of pain, but, you know, I can't afford to not meet payroll. 
So why take any chances at all? That's my attitude. I don't know how common my view is, but uh, that's how I'm behaving. Do you think it's a mistake or a necessity that they're going to release the list of borrowers in two years? Um, well, two years from now, sure, why not? It, you know, the need for transparency probably for political reasons is there. But I think the bigger issue is going to be what Secretary, uh, excuse me, Chairman Powell announced last night which is an investigation into the failure of bank supervision, right? These mistakes that were made at um, uh, First Republic, that were made at SVB, are the kind of mistakes some 11-year-old who plays a lot of Monopoly would know not to make. They were over-concentrated in particular assets. Uh, SVB put, pledged 5% of its assets to a single untried investment, which was an environmental fund. You don't put 5% of your assets into anything. That's just wrong. And for a bank examiner not to notice it, I think, is uh, is odd. Same thing true with First Republic, which gorged itself on 3.5% long-term mortgages. I mean, I was remortgaging, uh, refinancing everything at 3.5%. It was for my benefit, not the bank's. So, you know, God love them for doing it, but they're, in, they're reaping what they sowed. And the, for the bank examiners... Not to have blown the whistle to me is astonishing. As we pivot uh, to the pivot, let me just bring in Steve for some response to that. Are you getting any sense, Steve, of the case they will make for themselves here? And, and could you bring us up to speed on, you know, I've seen Nomura's out there calling for a, a quarter point cut. Uh, I think this morning, uh, who was it that was also talking about the need to start pausing, who had previously been hawkish? Thank you, Tori. Paul McCulley. Uh, where are we, Steve, in terms of kind of the street and, uh, and the take on the Fed at this point? I mean, you said it earlier, the 12 standard deviation move that you talked about, it, it's a new equilibrium, uh, Kelly. It's a new sense of where the Fed is going and, and what it's going to do uh, over the next several months. And if you take a look here, there's the March FOMC meeting probabilities. It's now still a 25 hike there. But remember, that whole graph was pushed to the right there, which was 25 and 50. Uh, and it was uh, a 60 or 70 percent probability of that a week ago. So that's come down. But longer term, guys, look at the January 2024 Fed contract. That's where the big move is. You've been up as high as 150 on that January 24 contract. Uh, and now uh, where are you? You're down at 440. So you've taken 100 basis points off of it. Um, I think Larry's right about a lot of what he says. The only thing I would add is I don't think it's beyond the Fed to message the idea of a pause together with the confidence. He's right that that would be an interesting idea, an interesting uh, uh, thing that the market would take from it, that there is a lack of confidence in the, in the Fed's own measures. At the same time, if they said, look, um, there's still uh, things to settle here. We think we've done a good job. We think it's, uh, the financial system is stable, but ultimately, uh, we think we want to pause here and we can come back to it. And like we've talked about, Kelly, there is that example in Britain where they did take a month off because of trouble at the pension funds and came back to quantitative tightening after yes. that. So uh, and, and several people I've spoken to also said they don't think the Fed will lose a whole lot of inflation fighting momentum by taking a month off here to let things stabilize. So, Larry, that that's the thing that that I worry about, I guess, you know, I understand that inflation is still four percent. But if we wait 18 months, is it going to be lower, right? I mean, do we, are we missing the obvious here? We are watching these blowups in front of our eyes and we're still talking about Fed rate hikes. You know, 
is there really a risk that we're going to see higher inflation, not lower inflation, the way that things are seizing up out there, that we're, if we just give it another 6, 12, 18 months to play? I mean, look at small business loans. They're going to be headed towards 9%, 10% borrowing this summer as it was, let alone if they can even get access to capital right now. I just can't imagine that this makes the risk on balance more inflationary to the economy. Well, what we, the news we got this morning was that 12-month headline is 6%, 12-month core is 5.5%. You know, that's basically what we expected. And if you go back a week, what did we expect? Uh, as Steve just pointed out, we were expecting a 50 basis point hike. It was put on the table. Um, well, if we got exactly what we expected on the inflation front, no improvement, then, um, you know, are we going to completely ignore that? Again, this Fed has a small credibility problem uh, of any kind uh, based on its uh, past performance. And um, I think, uh, you know, whispering sweet nothings is maybe helpful, but it's nothing like an action. And I really think that they have to follow through. What they do in the future, you know, we'll see what the future brings. They're data dependent. But, uh, you know, they sh uh, based on today's CPI, they sure better move next week. Steve? Well, I mean, I think it really comes down to this issue of uh, the projection of what happens uh, in the banking system here and the impact on the economy. I think it will probably lead to financial tightening. If they end up, Larry, using that fund put out by the Fed, it means that they're worried about deposits coming out and they're liquefying. They're not making a whole lot of loans, I would suspect, off of borrowing that, even though it creates more collateral. I think that there's financial tightening, and I think they're going to look down the road and see financial tightening as a result of this. And so, uh, and I think they're going to see inflation in the rearview mirror, not give up the fight. But I'm, I, I'm, I'm leaning at the moment, Kelly, towards a pause. But I will say this. I think the Fed's going to look at the flow of funds in the financial system up until the night before they decide. Oh. If there is stability in the flow of funds out of some of the regional community banks, um, and it's not really showing much at all, they could move a quarter point. If they're, still, if they're seeing some movement out of community banks and regional banks into the bigger banks, I think they might pause at that Quick, point. Quick, Larry, final word then. Could you add it with sure. a button to both stock and bond investors? Uh, what do you think people, you know, forget what you're doing with, your, with the cash in the bank. What should you be doing uh, with those assets? Well, first of all, I agree 100% with Steve that we're headed for a credit contraction. It's going to be a bad uh, what the Fed has to decide is whether they want to bring on that credit contraction immediately or take a chance on it a few months down the road, because if they do not signal that they are still, you know, that things are normal, that's the way to think about it, given all that they've invested, they are going to accelerate the, the uh, credit crunch um, and not solve the problem they want. So, again, Larry, though, so that it, to me, that sounds like a pretty bearish case for equities. Um, I guess, a bullish case for bonds and the idea that, you know, we're kind of this this is the normal order of things when you're heading into a massive downturn. Um, so if you could maybe not for bonds, though, if you think that we're still going to come out of this with inflationary problems. Well, they just the, this quote solution is quite inflationary. Right. The, they had money out the door. It was in the bank. It went from worth a dollar to worth 85 cents. And now they brought it back up to being worth a dollar, right? That's getting a buck fifteen of stimulus, monetary stimulus. But Larry, for every they dollar. have to they have to lend against that. Larry, they have to lend against that for that to be inflationary. And the reason they would go to that particular fund with that collateral and get a hundred 
is because they have a run on liquidity at the bank, not really to make additional loans. Well, uh, that's true. But if we fill the entire hole that we have um, because of capital losses, they're going to take their balance sheet back up to its old record highs because the amount of QT that's been done is slightly under $650 billion, which is the size of the hole at the end of December. I don't know how they can signal seriousness about bringing down their balance sheet, controlling inflation, if they take is the QT balance sheet over? back up to its old high. Is this QT over, Larry? I don't think it's going to be on next Wednesday. Um, I have long said that what's going to stop the Fed is not a success against inflation and it's not unemployment. What's going to stop the Fed is a financial crisis. Yes, this certainly is the kind of financial crisis everyone should have expected. Somehow their bank examiners weren't looking at it. Somehow the regional bank presidents who talked about hiking rates every six weeks didn't tell their departments, their supervision departments, well, you better focus on how that's going to impact the banks. I find that breathtaking. And I think that is going to be the issue the Fed is going to have to deal with long term. Why didn't that happen? Yeah. Why wasn't there supervisory, supervis, supervising function, <laughs> uh, you know, not brought to bear the same way their monetary policy was? Yeah, there's St. Louis Fed blog post about it uh, from just last month. We have to leave it there, gentlemen. I think you'll understand why. Steve, is it four words? We could try to explain what it's like to get your work done on a John Deere mower, compact tractor, or Gator XUV. But to really understand the feeling, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Well, just very quickly, the Bank Policy Institute decided, they looked at it and said that uh, Silicon Valley Bank would have passed the, uh, the uh, test that it was exempt from in the 2018 wow. uh, um, uh, change of the law. So it kind of undermines one of the arguments that it was a failure of, it was, it was a result of that legislation. All right, gentlemen, thank you. Appreciate it so much. Larry Lindsay, Steve Leisman uh, with the latest there. And we turn now with the Dow up 118 points uh, to one of the names that has been beaten down by these developments, Charles Schwab. Uh, three days of double-digit declines for the first time in its 36-year trading history. It's up today by 6%. The collapse of SVB has investors nervous about firms that have big losses on bonds and potentially flighty deposits. Schwab defending its financial position, insisting it's well-positioned to navigate the current environment, citing their 10% loan-to-deposit ratio, 80% of their total bank deposits within the FDIC insurance limits and, quote, access to significant liquidity, including an estimated $100 billion of cash flow. Will it be enough to reassure investors? Joining us for an exchange exclusive interview, Charles Schwab, CEO and co-chairman Walt Bettinger, along with our very own Sarah Eisen. Welcome to both of you, Sarah. Thank you, Kelly and Walt. Thank you for joining me. I, I know you don't speak out very often, but we're going through some pretty extraordinary times in your world right now. Thank you. Yes, and thanks, thanks for the invitation. Uh, I, I actually learned last night about uh, 10 p.m. that uh, mm. your network had emailed a staffer 
in our organization about me uh, coming on yesterday. And unfortunately, I didn't, as I mentioned, I didn't realize that till last evening. Of course, I've been on many, many times with you before. And so I just want to apologize yeah. for that. If I would have known, I likely would have been on, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, wasn't well, well, aware. You're, we're happy to have you today, and, and we have to address what's happened with your stock, first and foremost. It's not necessarily the first place you'd think about for contagion after a collapse of a bank in Silicon Valley that did a lot of lending to venture capital firms, but that's what's happened. Your stock is down almost 30 percent over the past week, including today's bounce. Why? Well, I think there's been a degree of confusion on two sides of our firm. The, the first one is the difference between a brokerage operation and a banking operation. Uh, I see people speaking about FDIC, and they have a fairly good understanding of that, that when you deposit at a bank, the bank takes those deposits and invests them. They are part of the bank balance sheet, and then the FDIC provides insurance up to 250000 At least that's the way it's been since, I believe, 2008. Brokerage assets are completely different. So we have about $7.4 trillion that clients have entrusted us with at Schwab. And, and over $7 trillion of that sits on the brokerage side. Brokerage assets are held separate. They are segregated from Schwab, segregated from Schwab assets. This is done under what's called the SEC Consumer Protection Rule. And so those assets are not commingled with us. Uh, I even have heard some pundits talk about CIPIC uh, and tried to compare it relative to FDIC. And of course, there's no comparison. These are segregated assets, and CIPIC kicks in largely only in a situation of fraud. Of course, the SEC requires us to report on the segregation, and we do so regularly, and they audit it. So I think that's the first bit of confusion that went on. People began to conflate CIPIC and FDIC and didn't didn't really understand the segregation of, of client securities from the rest of Schwab. But and you then do I think have the second deposits, one, right? I mean, you do you you do have a pretty robust bank business inside of of the company. We, we do, and, and that I think we is do. where and the concerns the, are. We do, and that's the second one that I want to I want to try to address. Our bank is very conservatively managed. Uh, if you look at the holdings of the bank, we have about ten percent of client deposits outstanding in loans that are over collateralized almost exclusively to our clients, very, very low risk. And then we have about 80% in U.S. government-backed paper. Uh, within that, you effectively you're operating with, with virtually, no, virtually no credit risk. From a liquidity standpoint, we have access to very substantial liquidity. Arguably, we have a level of liquidity over a 12-month period equal to our entire mm -hmm. bank sweep deposits around $280 billion. So uh, I understand that, that there were banks that got into trouble. Uh, we have a, a reasonable understanding as to how they did so. But those applications, we don't believe, apply at Schwab at all. We do understand, though, that when our stock price went down at a rate that was in some manners consistent with some of the regionals, that people easily put us up on slides and, and talked about us in a manner consistent with some of the regional banks. Completely different model, completely different. I mentioned, or you mentioned earlier, the 80% plus of our deposits in FDIC insured balances. Insured. Banks that have run yeah. into trouble are at fractions of that number.
But, but as you say, you've been swept in. Have you seen any deposit outflows? What are you seeing from customers? No, actually what we're seeing is, is asset inflows to the firm in significant numbers. So in February, our clients brought in almost $42 billion in net new assets to us. March to date, they've averaged about $2 billion a day. Interestingly enough, last Friday, when we were maybe at the heart of uh, the, the peak maybe of some of these challenges before the actions taken uh, by the Federal Reserve around liquidity, our clients actually brought about $4 billion into the firm that day alone. Hmm. Another interesting factoid, the number one stock that our clients bought in, Feb in, in Friday, on Friday, was Schwab stock. Schwab. Yeah, saw, saw a bargain out there, I guess. So, as I understand it, Walt, there are concerns about this so-called cash sorting. I don't, I don't want to get too esoteric here, but this idea that clients have been moving money from deposits into money markets, for instance, and that really pressures margins. We've been seeing that. Has that accelerated? Is that something to be concerned about? Well, we haven't seen an acceleration. And let me just quickly uh, walk through what that is. That simply clients moving uh, assets from transactional-oriented accounts, like a checking account or a brokerage sweep account, into a higher-yielding investment. It might be a CD, a money market fund, a treasury security. That's a good thing. Uh, that's what we want clients to do with their investment cash. In fact, we reach out to clients by the thousands, by the tens of thousands every day, encouraging them to do so with their investment cash. It's the right thing to do for clients. It's the way we operate our firm. And, and we think it's a very prudent action uh, on their part. And then you, you address the, the concerns about unrealized losses. Can you just put some, some perspective on this for us, what they look like on the asset side for you? Because I hear that you do have a deeply underwater mortgage portfolio. Well, it's not really, it's not a mortgage portfolio. It's a security portfolio. So let, let me talk a little bit about this concept of, of paper losses in a rapidly rising rate environment. So again, I'm going to contrast our bank to a typical bank. We only have 10% of loans outstanding of our total deposits. We're holding 80% U.S. government-backed paper. So we go and buy securities with these deposits, and we look to match the duration of those to client holdings. If you look at our overall portfolio, somewhere around three, three years, somewhere in that range is the duration mm -hmm. of this almost exclusively U.S. government-backed uh, portfolio of uh, securities. Now, we have to be realistic. Whether you are making loans out of a bank or you're buying U.S. Treasuries or any government paper, anyone who has done any of that in the last handful of years is sitting on paper losses. It's not unique to Schwab. In fact, if I were to go back to my early career as uh, working in the actuarial area in the pension world, I think uh, a 30-year mortgage at say, 3.5%, as was talked about in an earlier segment, on paper is probably worth about half of what it was originally. So, yes, we have some marks, because paper marks, because interest rates have gone up so rapidly. But those marks right. are not relevant unless we were to have to sell. And we don't see any reasonable scenario whatsoever that we would have to sell. I guess I'd pose this question back to think of. Mm -hmm. If you were investing your money at a bank, would you rather be at a bank that takes your money and has it in U.S. government-backed 
paper, or would you rather deposit as a bank to a bank that is lending it out on, say, a 10-year commercial office building or a 30-year residential mortgage? These are all the reasons why, again, Schwab has been a, a, a safe port in the storm for five decades, and we are the same safe port in a storm today. The difference between you and the big banks, between some of the regional banks and, and you and others in Silicon Valley Bank, unfortunately, and the big banks, is that is that because of regulations, it gets excluded from mark to market for from capital ratios. Is that what got us into trouble here? Is that what got Silicon Valley Bank into trouble here? Well, it's difficult for me to speculate on, on Silicon Valley Bank and, and all the issues that may have played in to what unfolded there. I will say that we didn't have any direct exposure to them, uh, given the conservative nature of the way we operate our firm or any of the other uh, banks that are in the, in the news today. But we do have an unusual scenario around the way we treat these temporary paper losses. Uh, and, and that is if you hold a security, you publish it, you're transparent about it, and you make sure the whole world knows about those on-paper losses. Whereas if you hold those loans I talked about, a commercial mortgage on an office building or a residential loan, you don't mark those. And so the whole world doesn't right. see the paper losses that would have been there. Again, I would prefer the transparency. I think most investors would prefer the transparency. Well, <laughs> and I think most depositors would also. So enter the liquidity solution here that we got from the government Sunday night, you know, insuring the uninsured depositors. I know that's not the primary concern for you, but the liquidity facility, the bank term funding program. And I know you said you don't have to tap that. Would you ever access that at a time of a crunch? How important was that step? Or do you think there's a negative stigma there? Well, again, it's difficult to say. I know that uh, they're, they're going to disclose those who utilized it in, in a couple of years. I, I guess I would say this. We don't see any need for us to access that facility. Um, if the need were to arise, well, certainly, then, then we would consider it along with other liquidity-raising uh, uh, opportunities. But we don't see any need to do so. We haven't uh, at, uh, at this point. And our liquidity needs are being met by just our normal operations of business. And, and, and those are the things that we, again, have been transparent about for a long time, where we would go in the event of, uh, of spike in rates. We would issue CDs, and we would uh, look at our relationship with the FHLB, uh, as well as we have tremendous flows from new clients. Again, back to the metrics I talked about earlier, $2 billion a day coming in, $4 billion and. On Friday alone, there's a lot of cash that comes in along, along with that. So uh, we'll look at it if we need to, but we just don't see it on the horizon right now. You also have a pretty big investment advisory business, Walt. I wonder if any of that has been affected in the last few days just around the perceptions of risk around the firm. Sure. Well, back, back to my opening of, of, of apology, Sarah. That's in part why I, I uh, maybe didn't find out about your request until late last evening. I spent most of yesterday engaging with our clients, serving them, talking with them, listening to them, because that's what's really important. When, when you have a diversified client base like we do, 35 million clients across all types of individuals, investors, traders, investment advisors, as you, as you referenced, that's great diversity, and it provides tremendous stability for our firm.
What I've heard from the advisors that I spoke with yesterday is great confidence in our firm. Most of them have utilized us for decades in serving their clients. They know how conservative we are. They know we don't take risks. They know that our viewpoint is it's OPM, it's other people's money. That's why we buy, that's why we buy conservative securities. That's why we don't go out a long way in terms of duration. And, uh, and that's why we maintain access to liquidity in the way that we do. So the RIAs are, are comfortable with what we're doing. It is important, though, that we continue to educate those who may not understand this segregation of client securities from all other assets at Schwab. That, that is an important message, and I don't know that that message has been delivered as well across the press or, in fairness, yeah. by us at Schwab as it could have been. Okay, fair enough. So, so what regulation, will ultimately, do you think will come out of this? Because what we've heard from the Biden administration, from Secretary Yellen, is that that's where this is heading, to prevent something like this from happening again. And we still have this mismatch between the assets and the liabilities, and I'm not sure that was fixed by what, what they presented. So where does all this go? Well, I, I, the one thing I can feel confident in is we're gonna, going to see an impact in FDIC premiums, right? Because uh, if we're going to have in, uh, depositors made whole for uninsured balances, and that's going to come from uh, banks, then we're going to have higher premium rates there. Beyond that, it, it just depends on how all this shakes out. Time, time will tell. We might have some adjustments in terms of uh, the way uh, available for sale or held to maturity, investments are treated, things along those lines. But whatever direction it goes, we feel really confident about our ability to continue to serve our clients, continue to be that conservative, safe port in a storm. Uh, None of that's going to change, whatever occurs going forward from a regulatory standpoint. I mean, one of the reasons that a lot of these banks, including yours, have sold off in in the last few days according to investors and analysts, is this just the business model is going to change, the higher regulations, higher cost of capital. Um, as you mentioned, higher fees now as a result of funding all of this for uninsured depositors. What, what are you telling investors about what that looks like, what, how that impacts your revenues and profitability going forward, if it's going to be a, a re-rating? Well, I think this may be, you opened it with a question about our stock price, and, and, and I might suggest that this could be one of the factors that has weighed on it, and that is just simply an uncertainty about what the future will bring in terms of earnings, really for any organization in the financial services world. Uh, and, uh, and I think in time, as we better understand what changes might occur, uh, we'll be transparent as always, and, and we'll be able to share scenarios as to what our earnings might be. It is possible that you could see some contraction within margins, but again, looking at us at Schwab, the the last several quarters, we've delivered a 50% pre-tax adjusted margin, and adjusted is only adjusting for the one-time costs related to the integration of of TD Ameritrade. So we're a very profitable firm, and and if there is some modest impact to margins in a couple of points, I, I don't see that having any meaningful long-term implication for the performance of our stock, but uh, time will tell. I'll say this, this yeah. morning, as soon as our trading window opened, I, I was waiting at the door and bought 50,000 shares for my personal account on uh, right as the market opened. That much confidence I certainly have in this company. You bought this morning. I was going to ask you if, you, if, if the company if, if you bought back stock over the last few days. 
Yeah, I, I don't know the exact company decisions at, uh, at this point, given the last few days. I've been very focused on the client side. We've been buying back stock in fairly large uh, quantities in, uh, in recent months, but I can't comment here on just the last couple days. But, but again, I, I personally went ahead and bought stock. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that for anyone else. That's just a personal decision for me, so I'm not promoting the stock. Uh, but it made sense for me when I, when I saw the stock price, uh, uh, given, uh, given my insights of the company, to, to go ahead and, and, and make a substantial buy. I was going to ask you, how big of a buy did you make? Uh, I bought about 50,000 shares personally uh, at market open today. All right. You and Ron Barron telling Squawkbox earlier that he was, that he was buying your stock. Uh, as a result of this, I, I could do well, far we, worse than being. An, <laughs> I could. I, I'm sorry. I say I could do far worse than being an investor as capable as Ron Barron. All right, there you go. Thank you so much for taking the time and, and all the questions. Obviously, a lot of swirl Thanks. and a lot of noise. It's good to hear from you directly. Thanks for the invitation. And again, my apologies about missing your note yesterday. Oh no, you, you came on. That that's good. And and I know our viewers. Who, who have a lot of money at Schwab and were potentially worried about it, not to mention the stock, uh, or e were eager to hear from you. So thank you, Walt. Walt Bettinger. Thank you, sir. Walt and Sarah, thank With you both very much. 8%. Yep, Sarah, Go thank ahead. you. Just want to mention a couple of news items that he made before we move along here, saying, number one, they got $4 billion of inflows on Fridays. Number two, he bought 50,000 uh, shares this morning on the market open. Elsewhere, it's also been quite newsy. A couple of things just happened in the last 15 minutes. First on the banks, trading in shares of First Republic have been halted multiple times today. S&P Global Ratings placed uh, their first place First Republic on credit watch with negative implications, including for its senior unsecured debt, subordinated debt, and preferred stock. Uh, the shares are still up 40 percent. Moody's made a similar move last night. First Republic around 43 from a low of about 17 yesterday. Meantime, two Russian fighter jets collided with an unmanned U.S. Air Force drone operating with an international airspace over the Black Sea today, causing it to crash. That announcement came from the Pentagon just about 30 minutes ago. It says one of Russia's jets hit the drone's propeller, forcing it to crash into the water. Before the collision, the Russian jets dumped fuel on the drone and flew in front of it in what the Pentagon calls a reckless, environmentally unsound and unprofessional manner. Uh, Dow hanging on to about 157 point gain right now. The exchange is back after this busy hour. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back. My next guest says people don't fully appreciate how quickly the Fed just acted to backstop the financial system and prevent a larger crisis. He says their plan will work. It will calm things down and people should be looking for bargains here, even with a recession on the horizon. Let's welcome Chris Grisanti, chief equity strategist at MAI Capital and Michael Schumacher, global head of macro strategy at Wells Fargo. A couple of busy days here for everybody. Chris, let me just start with you and why you think that sort of the intensity of this move is something people need to understand what what the fed just did here yeah for those of us who managed money in 08 kelly um th this is a, a refreshing thing actually because 
in 08, the Fed fixes that we saw over the past weekend literally would have taken weeks. They didn't have the authority to do it. They would have had to go to Congress. So in, in one weekend, the Fed has backstopped not just deposits below 250, but every single depositor of Silicon Valley and of Signature, and has also stood behind the, the depositors of banks that have you know, that, that don't have those kind of problems yet. So that's a really big deal. I don't think the market appreciates it, mostly because I think it happens so quickly. They think, well, anything that happens over a weekend can't be that great. Do you but, but when you read the details and the amount of liquidity available to the banks, it's really quite impressive and very quick. Is it going to engender more pushback as people, you know, there were some who said over the weekend, OK, this was the right thing to do now. But within a week, we need to set up a new system for FDIC insurance because now there's an implicit backstop to every bank deposit in the country. Yeah, they clearly when they say that it's not going to cost the taxpayers anything, there's some stuff going on there, because if, if that's true and it's all going to be borne by the FDIC, that, that means FDIC premiums are going to go way up. So so that's an issue, and, and that'll get talked about, but that can get talked about when things calm down a bit. What, what I'm mostly concerned about is, is stopping a, a 1930s slash 2008 run on the banks, and, and I think the Fed has acted quickly, and I think it's done that. Michael Schumacher, have you ever seen the two-year act like it did yesterday? And what do you think the ramifications of that will be? Kelly, you'd have to go back a long time. So it's the biggest move in the last 20-plus years, bigger than after 9-11, bigger than the day Lehman plummeted. So it's just a monumental move. And I think the problem is you've got so many cross-currents people are really struggling with. Does the Fed focus first on inflation? How does it deal with the issues in the banking system? And and that calculus is changing almost minute by minute, hence just the enormous moves in twos. Do you, Michael, think that positioning wise, you know, people are going to blow up as a result here? Or do you think we can have a move like that uh, and kind of go, all right, well, moving on. Nothing to see here. Yeah, it's funny, Kelly. If you were Rip Van Winkle, let's say, and woke up today and looked at the markets, you'd say, oh, not that much, frankly, has happened right. so far this year. But the roller coaster ride, it's been amazing. So. It's a little bit far-fetched to think no one's been hurt, and yet we've, I think, got too little time so far to try and assess all those things. It'll take a while to, to flow out into the markets. And Chris, I, this has got to be positioning-wise an interesting one for you, because on the one hand, you're saying, look, they've acted swiftly, we're back to calmness, but you still think we're, we're likely heading into a recession. So yeah. what do you do here? I mean, there's a big difference between, between a, a financial crisis uh, implosion and, and a, and a Garden Valley, uh, garden style recession. And, and I do think we're still headed for the garden style recession. I think that the failure of Silicon Valley Bank is just one more piece of evidence that when you raise interest rates that quickly, things will start to break. So that, that will be domino number one. I think we'll see a number of indicia as the months go on here. I think the Fed has to continue to raise based on this morning's uh, uh, inflation numbers. Uh, and, and so, you know, we're, we're, we're speeding down a cul-de-sac, Kelly, and, and I don't think there's, there's a happy ending in the short term. But I do think we've avoided a banking crisis, and that's the big news I love for this. When that's the positive news, you know, things right. can't feel that great right now. Uh, <laughs> right. Michael, could you comment on that as well and what you think the Fed's next move might be here? I guess the debate is shifting to whether they do a quarter point or no hike at all, but uh, the curve has changed significantly Although the steepness now is kind of the, the bad kind of steepness that comes, you know, usually once uh, the recession is, is kind of almost upon us, shall we say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's incredible, Kelly. You think, well, hey, the Fed meets in eight days and now that seems like an eternity. So looking at the inflation data today, not great, bad for the Fed. 
almost any way you look at it. So that tells us the Fed probably does hike again, but that whole idea is contingent on markets calming at least to a decent degree by March 22nd. Will they be calmer? Almost certainly. Will they be calm enough for the Fed? Can't really say. And I also think it's worth noting when you look at the amount of easing priced into this year, granted it's less than it was yesterday, but still it's a decent amount. So markets, investors, your viewers are struggling with how does the Fed act, not just so much over the next week or two, but over the next nine or 12 months. And Chris, by the way, I mean, are you hearing in conversations with colleagues or anybody personal or sort of company-wide concerns about funds that are over the FDIC insurance limit right now? Yes, but from, from both companies that we talk with and also from clients. Uh, and, and as I think a prudent fiduciary would have advised anybody with, with deposit concentrations. Now, having said that, you know, I, I really think that uh, those deposits even above the limit are safe now. So I don't want to be Pollyannish, and as a fiduciary, I would still recommend diversity. But having looked what the Fed has done, I, I really think uh, most investors were fighting the last war, which was 2008. And, and I do think we've got problems ahead, but they're not going to be an implosion of the banking system. I should mention one of your stocks. We talked about Domino's last time as a maybe a recession and softer labor market hedge. But you also like Intercontinental Exchange, and you think that could be a volatility play? I do. I, I think there's going to be more volatility ahead. I, I like those financials that aren't taking banking risk, but that are uh, that they benefit from more trading, more volatility, whether it's in the oil pits, the interest rate pits. So uh, Intercontinental Exchange is well off its highs. It's down 30 percent from its highs. It's trading near a 10 year low valuation, a real money maker and a nice way to be in financials without taking the, the kind of Silicon Valley risk. All right. We'll leave it there, gentlemen. Thank you, Chris Grisanti and Mike. Michael Schumacher. Speaking of the FDIC limit, they, along with the Fed, are guaranteeing to make Silicon Valley bank depositors whole and kind of implicitly anybody else. But what if you're a customer with more than that uh, 250K limit in the bank? Can you really breathe easy now or not? Sharon Epperson is here with a look at some ways to sort of safeguard uh, your money. A lot of consumers I've been talking to are very worried about this, and it's important to know how to protect your money over the long run. It's important to also understand what is insured and what is not. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC insurance, does not cover stocks, bonds, mutual funds, exchange-traded funds, or crypto assets, or even what you may have in a safe deposit box at a bank. What the FDIC insurance does cover is your cash, up to $250,000 per depositor per bank. Now, coverage is automatic whenever a deposit account is opened at an FDIC-insured bank. And that includes checking, savings, money market accounts, and certificates of deposits, or CDs. If you have a joint ownership on an account, each of you can have up to $250,000 insured. And you may even find that you can get more than $250,000 insured through your bank if it's part of a bank network, like the Intrafi Network Deposit Program. Ask your bank for additional FDIC coverage. And here's how it could work. Say you have a million dollars in your name at one bank. The first $250,000 is automatically insured at that bank. If the bank participates in this network or in a bank network, the next $750,000 would be divided among several other banks, with no one bank having more than the insurance limit. Now, you can also do this yourself by opening several accounts at different FDIC-insured banks, but that diversification is going to be really 
key in terms of where you put I mean, as, as a first step, I'm not sure if you even have to shop around. I think you can do in your name a checking and savings account, in a spouse's name a checking and savings account. So even at your one institution, you could be up to maybe four accounts under that cap, potentially. But on the question of uh, investments, you know, IRAs, that kind of thing, as we were just hearing from Schwab, I mean, th that's a little bit different animal with a different set of coverages. It's a different set of coverages if you're looking at a brokerage firm. But if you are at a bank, the other type of ownership category, their single accounts, their joint accounts, another type of ownership category is retirement accounts, certain retirement accounts, including IRAs. So you could potentially have FDIC insurance on your IRA at the bank um, up to $250,000. Interesting. And then for small businesses? Well, for small business owners, for people who are running a nonprofit, they may have to have more than $250,000 in a bank. So it's important to ask if they're a part of a network and they can do this for you and go to other banks and make sure you're diversified that way, or you're going to have to do it yourself. Wow. Sharon, thank you so much. Yep. We appreciate it, sure. Sharon Epperson, today. We've got more on that Russian jet collision with the U.S. drone. We just got details from the Pentagon about 30 minutes ago. New information now with our Morgan Brennan, who has the story. Morgan? Well, this is very much a developing situation, Kelly, and I will note that uh, the markets did fall on these initial headlines uh, about this drone, this Reaper drone uh, that was struck by or collided with Russian fighter jets a short while ago. John Kirby, the spokesperson for the National Security Council, just wrapping uh, a briefing uh, a few moments ago, saying that President Biden has been briefed on the drone incident, uh, calling it unsafe, unprofessional, reckless, saying that the State Department will reach out and make its concerns over the drone known to Russian officials. Also noting that this Reaper posed no threat to anyone and was operating in international airspace and saying that they have the we the Americans have been flying over that space consistently for a year now that we do not need to check in with the Russians when we fly over the Black Sea and that the U.S. will continue serving its national security interests in that part of the world. Uh, the Defense Department imminently General Ryder, the spokesperson for the Pentagon, is expected to also uh, brief the media any moment now, uh, essentially, and we'll continue to monitor the situation and bring you headlines and, and more detail as we get them in this evolving situation. But, Morgan, of course, you can see that uh, the markets are starting to come back as we do get these headlines. Sure. And, and, go, and tell us again Russia's rationale as to why this was justified, because plenty of people are pointing out, OK, wait a minute, a Chinese spy balloon you know, floats into our airspace and we let it drift a while and then we take it out, you know, and, and meanwhile, Russia goes ahead and just kind of clips this aircraft and into the Black Sea it goes. Uh, I, I think this is all what's being assessed and, and, and why this is very much a developing situation right now. And I think it's why it's really keen to note, again, that this was international airspace and this is the reason that the markets reacted to this situation, uh, given the fact that apparently, according to Kirby, this is an area that this Reaper surveillance drone has been flying over consistently for a year. So to see this type of interaction, this type of incident uh, is, is significant and meaningful. But it also more broadly, I think, speaks to the tensions between the U.S. and allies uh, and Russia, given the ongoing war in Ukraine uh, mm. and certainly even just recently the rhetoric we, we have heard from Putin uh, as that as we've rounded that one year mark and counting. Absolutely. Morgan, thanks for now. We appreciate it. Morgan Brennan following the story. More to come. The collapse in yield since just last week meantime means lower mortgage rates as a result. Could that restart the pause in the housing market? It's been whiplash this year. Let's turn to Diana Olick to explain. Diana. Well, Kelly, so there was a bounce back, though, this morning in yields. And because of that, mortgage rates ticked up a little bit, but really just close to Friday's close. The average rate on the 30-year fixed is now at 6.75 percent. 
down from over 7% last Wednesday, but still up from near 6% in January. And that's because of the CPI and fears the Fed will continue to be aggressive on inflation. That's for now, at least, outweighing the fears over the banking system. Now, the longer we go without another bank failure, the more likely it is that rates will go up again. Now, later today, we're going to get earnings from Lennar. That's the nation's second largest home builder. And this is going to be interesting simply because of the timing. The quarter being reported runs from the end of November to the end of February. Now, look at what happened with mortgage rates. They started coming down and were then decidedly down in January. That's when we saw both sales of newly built homes and pending sales of existing homes, which are signed contracts, jump nationally way beyond expectations even. Then came February and rates got ugly again. This is going to be some of the first builder commentary we get on that rate jump. And it may also be a sign of what we'll see Thursday in the next monthly report on housing starts, because again, we are in this higher rate environment now, very different from January. Kelly. Right. Uh, Diana, thank you. We appreciate it. Uh, Diana Olick. For more, our next guest says home buyers have begun to feel an urgency that was missing last year. Let's bring in Stephen Kim. He's a home builder analyst at Evercore ISI. He says builders, uh, buyers have a bit of FOMO too. Stephen, welcome. It's good to have you. Thanks very much. So how would you describe conditions? Because, I mean, we're talking about day-to-day -day swings in mortgage rates and I have to imagine that people are, if anything, that might make them err on the side of caution as opposed to, you know, wanting to jump in one day when they, th they think they might get a good rate. Yeah, you might think that, but the, the reality on the ground is something quite different. I think that what you're going to learn uh, this afternoon when Lennar reports is that very surprisingly for many, the housing market and particularly the sales by the public builders uh, actually strengthened in February, despite rates which moved, as Diana pointed out, back up to close to 7%. You're not going to hear that that created any softness at all for built home builder uh, sales, and in fact, quite the opposite. Uh, and we think that what's happening here is that the buyer has moved from a fear of buying at the top to now beginning to see a fear of missing out. Uh, it was the case six months ago that rising rates gave everyone the concern that home prices were going to be falling and they were making a grave mistake if they bought a home and so they waited. What you're hearing now is that people are saying, I can afford the home now, but if I wait much longer I'm here and rates are going up, I might not be able to afford later. We are seeing that the builders are actually having product I can move into quickly. And you know what? I'm getting some deals too. And so you know what? I'm going to buy today because if I wait, I will miss out. And that's the change that's happening. And it's really fascinating because investors love to talk about math. But when it comes to buying a house, the buyer has a lot of mental things going on. It's not just math. It's mental. That's what we've been telling folks. Where are we on the builder stocks? We're showing there the chart uh, where we saw them climb. They sort of hit the lows last summer, climbed up, went back towards the lows last fall. And our, you know, the, the uh, XHB around 65, kind of where it was 12, 18 months ago. Yeah, the home builders have outperformed the S&P by about 20% over the last three months. Uh, and that is largely due to the fact that the negativity around the industry was so profound, with lots of good reasons, by the way. Um, and that what you've seen in the months since has actually been surprisingly good performance. You've had a little bit, a bit, a little bit of help from rates. Not a lot, though. Um, I would say rates were at 7 in, in November, and then they came down to 6, but then they went right back up to 7. So really what it is is that the housing, housing market has proven to be far more resilient 
than most people thought. Uh, we just don't have enough homes in the country. We have inventory that is chronically low, and that quickly turns a market which where people are concerned about buying into a market where they're concerned they're going to be able to they're going to miss out. And that's the that's the real shift that you've seen this spring. All right. So what's the favorite Stephen Kim stock right now? Well, we have all the home builders we cover rated by. That's been the case, uh, you know, for, for quite a while now. Uh, we think that this group is just fundamentally misunderstood. Um, and so if I had to pick uh, a name to buy, I actually think buying Lennar ahead of the print is a, is a totally fine thing to do. I think Ooh, they're going to have a lot of Walk it in front of the print. That's confidence. <laughs> I think there's a lot of negativity, and I think people are concerned about their margin guidance. Everything that I've heard in the last couple of months suggests to me that things have actually gotten a lot better since the last time they spoke to the street. Well, there still does seem to be uh, secular demand for housing that, if nothing else, speaks to why we might see any durability in what otherwise is usually a very difficult point of the cycle. Stephen, thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thanks. Stephen Kim with Evercore ISI. Let's get a quick check of the markets. Dow's up 117 points here as we cling on to the green. Where we briefly looked early like we might go negative more towards the top of the hour. Uh, the S&P down somewhat from those levels. That does it for us. But for more coverage, you can sign up for my newsletter in one easy step at CNBC.com newsletters or scan that QR code on your screen. And next on Power Lunch, it was one of the few regional bank stocks in the green yesterday. We'll talk to Wafed CEO Brent Beardall. Tyler's getting ready. I'll join him on the other side of this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.